Well, good day. How are you doing today? I hope you're uh, having a blessed day and everything is going well for you and for your uh, family. Uh, This is Pastor Spencer, and this is the Reading Through the New Testament uh, podcast that we've been uh, utilizing as kind of a companion uh, resource for you as you read through the New Testament, as we do so as a church, um, to help us to uh, meditate, think about what we're reading as we're reading through these chapters of the New Testament um, so we're now in a week 10. This is for Sunday, March 6th, the week following that. And uh, we are in full-blown now in Luke's gospel. Uh, last week, we began reading Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 1. This week, we are now in Luke chapter 2 and going to read through chapter 6. So as you've uh, been opening up Luke's gospel You've probably been, uh, you know, if you've grown up in church, you know many of these stories. Um, they're probably uh, quite familiar to you, especially uh, around Christmas time. Luke's gospel is very popular around uh, Christmas time, especially those opening two chapters. Uh, just uh, beautiful, uh, great, uh, t- gives us much insight uh, compared to the other writers even about um, the uh, events surrounding Jesus's birth and and its importance and even some of the background that we see there with um, uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth and uh, the background with the birth of John the Baptist and then eventually um, the angel coming to Mary and her her beautiful Magnificat song. So as we've as we've begun diving into Luke's gospel, uh, I told you before that we were going to kind of get some more details this week, and that's what I want to do this week as we're kind of now fully into Luke's gospel. I want to kind of uh, uh, just kind of walk through a little bit, just give some quick facts about why it's important, just just what it is. Um, so as you're reading this portion of God's word, um, you kind of know more of what you're what you're dealing with. Um, because remember, we talked with Matthew. He was a, a follower of Jesus, a personal disciple of Jesus, uh, walked with him on earth. Mark, John Mark, was a close friend of the Apostle Peter. There's a really good chance that what we're reading in the Gospel of Mark contains many of uh, Peter's reflections and stories that he passed on to Mark, and Mark is writing them down. And Mark was writing for a Gentile audience, right? Whereas Matthew is writing much more for a Jewish audience, it, it appears, or at least his his Gospel is it contains a large number of uh, Jewish features, um, and whereas Mark is, is obviously writing for a more Gentile audience, non-Jewish audience. And that is also somewhat similar with Luke's gospel, who is uh, Luke, the beloved physician, a close companion of the Apostle Paul. We read about him in the New Testament. He was a well-educated, smart guy who uh, became a convinced that the truth claims about Jesus of Nazareth were true, that this man died and rose again and poured the Holy Spirit, and that the, the message that had been revealed through Jesus of Nazareth and in his person and in his work was true, and he became a convinced believer of the claims of Christianity. Now, as we come to Luke's gospel, uh, right away we notice and it is the longest book in the New Testament. It is the longest book of any of the books in the New Testament, longer than Acts. Um, 
And I, I'm pulling these facts from a, from a New Testament introductory book that I've got that uh, gives some very helpful facts and background information about these books. Um, and so uh, the, it's the longest book in the New Testament. In fact, one person has called Luke the most beautiful book ever written. Um, that's pretty high praise, isn't it? The most beautiful book ever written. And it is a beautifully written book. You can tell um, whenever you read it and in such that this guy, Luke, the physician, was a doctor. He's very intelligent. He's capable. He's well-educated. Um, he's like the Apostle Paul in that sense, right? Paul was a very well-educated, well-rounded, well-read individual um, as, as an apostle, right? He had been training and uh, had been trained by the rabbis and and was was more of a you know had a, uh, experience in the academic world so to speak if you want to use that kind of jargon um he was a, a man of 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 literature a man of books and uh similarly luke was a very intelligent man and you can read in his writings just his personality his background that he brings to it it, it comes through in what he's what he's doing now luke of course being a close associate of the Apostle Paul, um, is is not an eyewitness of Jesus. So he's not a, a follower in the sense in which um, we don't read anywhere that he, he knew about Jesus while Jesus was on earth um, or followed him. He, uh, in fact, at the very beginning of his gospel, he opens up here and says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught." It appears that Luke here is opening up and not claiming himself to be an eyewitness, but he is here saying, I have gathered eyewitness testimony and uh, I've researched the story. So that's what Luke is doing. When you're reading this gospel narrative here, one of the peculiar features about Luke um, and what he's doing is while while all of the gospels are factual, true, and all those things, Luke is, has seems to come from a more of a, a, I don't want to use the word specialized, but a more focused historical perspective where he's coming from a from the position of a well-educated guy who's researching all the facts, examining all the evidence. He's investigating the story of, of Jesus and talking to eyewitnesses. You could imagine like if he was here today, right, he would have like his audio recorder there recording the words of people who had said they had eyewitness experience of Jesus, what he did, who he was, talking to people who had who had um, known Jesus and known all of these experiences. And Luke is here um, kind of uh, bringing together all of this information, researching diligently all of the evidence that is available to him. And he's compiled all of his research and his diligent research, and it's given to us now in this written gospel account. And one of the things that Luke is going to do in his gospel is he's going to tie the person and the work of Jesus of Nazareth in with the broader world history to where now we're going to see, right, eventually, we'll to learn right away about um, in the days of Herod in verse 5 of chapter 1, 
But also, he ties in the uh, the reason why Jesus is born in Bethlehem, right? Of course, had been prophesied, but they're from God used a human uh, uh, cause as well in this uh, in in the world. Whenever we read in chapter two at the beginning of verse one, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. So he ties in the story of Jesus in with the broader geopolitical world that's going on all around him in the Roman Empire. He is is tying in the story of Christ into the broader world story. And he's actually going to be showing uh, ultimately that that the world story has been leading up to and 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 is all about the person of Jesus of Nazareth, who is both Lord and Christ of all. Now, he's writing here to a man named Theophilus in Luke 1.3, this Theophilus. He's writing an account to him. And there's a few things that we can pull from to know about something about who this guy was. And again, I'm stealing this from this New Testament introductory book that I've got that's very helpful. A couple of things. First of all, he was a man of high rank. He's an important guy because he's called most honorable Theophilus, whoever this guy is. Second of all, he's a man who knew something about Christianity. He had been informed about it, and he says, you have been instructed uh, in these things. So at least this Theophilus is an important man who uh, knows something about Christianity and maybe is uh, wanting to know more. Thirdly, he's a man who is uh, being told by Luke um, that you can know for certain, that you can know that these things, things are factual, true, historically verifiable, that whenever you look at all of the evidence, Luke is writing here, whenever you look at all of the evidence, you can see that these things did really happen as a certainty. Now, most likely, it seems that Theophilus was was a real guy who was a um, Luke's literary patron. In other words, what that means is he probably was the guy who paid Luke and uh, gave him money so that he could write and produce these words. And this is part one of a two-part work, obviously. Uh, Acts is the second part of this work that Luke is going to continue. So we've almost got a two-volume work that Luke is writing, and Luke and Acts, um, to this Theophilus to explain the origins, the, uh, the background, the historical details, and the facts about who this Jesus of Nazareth is, what he did, why it's important, and what his and and then what sprung his followers into um, to spread, as we see in Acts, the church. This these group of people start to follow this Jesus of Nazareth, and Luke is explaining what has happened and why it's important, and trying to tie it together for his literary patron Theophilus, and trying to show him that these things are certain. But on top of simply this this one literary uh, uh, patron here, Theophilus, that he's writing to, he's also got a broader audience in mind as well. And it's especially a Gentile audience, a Gentile audience, because this is a key question, and this is one from a New Testament scholar has said this, that Luke and Acts answered the doubts of a Gentile who found himself worshiping a Jewish Messiah that the Jews are largely rejecting. And that's a really good perspective to have as you're approaching Luke's gospel. Think about it. You've got all of these Gentiles, as we see in in Acts, 
right? The, the, the Gentiles believe, non-Jewish people start to believe in the Jewish Messiah. And the question is, why in the world should I, as a Gentile, bow the knee to and believe upon this Jewish Messiah whenever most of the Jews themselves are rejecting him? Why is this? Why should I do that? And Luke here is, is trying to show these things really did happen. And, and, um, and there is certainty regarding these things that happened. And also, he's going to show also throughout the, the universal implications of what Jesus has done. One, one example, one small example. Uh, you'll notice that in Zechariah's prophecy, um, well, actually, not, not that one. Um, let me go ahead a little bit farther here, actually, to, um, this is actually, I'm sorry, Simeon's prophecy in Luke chapter 2, whenever he, uh, whenever he um, is holding the baby Jesus. What does he say? He says that you're letting your servant depart in peace. My eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. Notice that universal nature, all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. So right away at the beginning of Luke's gospel, he's highlighting the fact that, yes, while there are Jewish origins and a Jewish background and a Jewish setting for Jesus's life and ministry, and that is the, the place where all of this began, the purpose and the intention and the scope of this Jewish Messiah's work and his importance have worldwide significance, empire-wide significance. And so what we're going to see here in Luke's gospel is what starts in Rome, right, where a decree goes out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed, comes and and goes to Bethlehem. And so what happens in Rome begins to affect what happens in Bethlehem and in Jerusalem. But now we're going to see what happens in Bethlehem and in Jerusalem by the end of the book of Acts has reached and started to impact what happens at Rome. So that's, that's a powerful, powerful reality, I think. And so those are helpful for us as we think about Luke's gospel overall. Um, <clears throat> so uh, a quick over-outline, too, of, of the book, right? So we've got chapter 1 through chapter 4, verse 13, and this is kind of an introduction to Jesus, his birth, um, early days, his baptism, his temptation, and we talk read about his mission. Then beginning in chapter 4, verse 14, all the way through chapter 9, verse 50, we have Jesus' Galilean ministry where he performs miracles, he teaches, he um, forgives sinners, he does his ministry, as we read um, in the other accounts of the Gospels as well. And then Luke's uh, unique here in the sense in which... um, Chapter 9, verse 51, is a key verse there where Jesus, after Peter has confessed Jesus to be the Christ, um, Peter has uh, experienced the transfiguration along with James and John. In chapter 9, verse 51, we read that Jesus, we read this, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And so from chapter 9, verse 51, all the way to the end of the book, This is Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. He sets his face, and so the rest of the book is set while Jesus is now walking to Jerusalem, set and determined to go and accomplish the work that the Father has given him to do. So those are the three basic categories. Introduction to Jesus and his mission, chapter 1 verses uh, through chapter 4, verse 13. Jesus' ministry from the middle of chapter 4 
through chapter 9, verse 50, and then from chapter 9, verse 51 to the very end of the book, we have Jesus now walking and setting his face, determined to go accomplish the work that his Father has given him to do. Okay? So, as we think about that now, with particularly with the with what we've got going on today in Luke chapter 2, verses 6, we've got um, in chapter uh, 2, right, we have the, the famous birth narrative of Jesus and the shepherds and, and uh, his presentation in the temple. In chapter 3, we have the ministry of John the Baptist, Jesus' baptism, his genealogy, his temptation in the wilderness. Uh, chapter 4, in the middle of it, we have Jesus who preaches a sermon declares what he has come to do, and is rejected at Nazareth. He performs various miracles, and he calls his first disciples um, through the rest of chapter 5. And then in chapter 6, he begins to have conflicts over the Sabbath and also preaches uh, to the people. So that's kind of an overview of what's going on in 2 through 6, but also sets the overall uh, idea of what we're doing in Luke's gospel and why it's important. Okay? So now as we as we turn our attention to what can we learn about as we um, think about Luke chapter 2 through verse 6, um, again, I want to pull from uh, J.C. Ryle um, and to kind of just give us some, some food for thought about what we can learn and how we can apply this to our lives as believers in Jesus Christ. Okay, so the first thing I want to point out is actually not from Luke chapter 2, but from the very beginning of Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 4. And this is from J.C. Ryle, whenever he's going to emphasize to us that where Luke says um, that um, this is a declaration of those things that are most surely believed among us. Um, he's wanting to give certainty, and we talked about all that historical research. Well, he wants to emphasize that, that the gospel is a narrative of facts about Jesus Christ. J.C. Ryle writes this, In the first place, Luke gives us a short but valuable sketch of the entire nature of a gospel. He calls it a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us. It is a narrative of facts about Jesus Christ. Christianity is a religion built upon facts. Let us never lose sight of this. It came before mankind at first in this shape. The first preachers did not go up and down the world proclaiming an elaborate, artificial system of abstruse doctrines and deep principles. They made it their first business to tell men great, plain facts. They went about telling a sin-laden world that the Son of God had come down to earth and lived for us and died for us and risen again. The gospel, at its first publication, was far more simple than many make it now. It was neither more nor less than the history of Christ. Let us aim at greater simplicity in our own personal religion. Let Christ and his person be the son of our system, and let the main desire of our souls be to live the life of faith in him and daily know him better. This was Paul's Christianity. To me to live is Christ. Philippians 1.21. That is a really helpful uh, opening way to think about the gospel, right? It is a narrative of facts. Our religion is built upon facts, historical facts that are verifiable. Christianity, in theory, as Paul points out in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if Jesus did not raise, then we are all in a big mess, and we're of all men most to be pitied. 
Paul there is giving the hypothetical. Paul did not believe that it was true that Christ had not been raised. He believed in the resurrection. He saw the resurrected Jesus himself. But what he is saying there is that if you could prove, if it was true that Jesus did not raise, then our religion is false. And that is so true, isn't it? There's a, there's a real sense in which, um, and I've heard it said before, that Christianity is the first religion that people who are skeptical about religion, if you're skeptical about all religion, well, you should come to Christianity first because you can overturn it. Because if, in, in theory, what I mean by that is this, if the facts recorded in this book, in this gospel, did not happen, then all of the teaching and the commandments don't mean anything because the facts of the history are wrong. Our religion is tied to the things that to the reality that these things really did happen and as we read in Acts they did not happen in a corner. These things really did happen. Our religion is built upon historical facts that if they were wrong then our religion is gone. This is so important because our religion is different from other religions in the world. Because other religions don't necessarily have to be tied down to um, historical facts occurring, right? Um, other religions can just teach, some, or some other philosophies can just tell you that this is the way things are, or this is the way things are, but they don't have to be verified. Luke is telling us at the very beginning of his gospel that he has looked at the evidence, he has verified it, and the eyewitnesses are true. This is a certain thing that we believe. We have been convinced that the facts bear out that Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God, that he did die on a cross, that he did raise from the grave, that he is ascended at the right hand of God, and that he will return one day. And because of all of those things, what he says to us in the Bible is very much authoritative for our faith and for our lives. That's what Christianity is. As he says, it is a simple thing, really. And that is so important for us, too, because sometimes we can overthink Christianity. Um, it is a deeply, it is a deep religion that you will never be able to fully comprehend everything. But on the other hand, it is very simple, so simple that a small child can believe it and understand it. So as we go through the gospel now, let's consider these facts and this very at its essence, a very simple religion, but also a very deep religion at the same time. Second of all, I want to think about the gospel coming to the shepherds. This famous passage in Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 20, when the, the, the angels come to the shepherds at the birth of Jesus. Uh, J.C. Ryle has this to say. We read in these verses how the birth of the Lord Jesus was first announced to the children of men. The birth of a king's son is generally made an occasion of public reveling and rejoicing. The announcement of the birth of the Prince of Peace was made privately at midnight and without anything of worldly pomp and ostentation. Let us mark who they were to whom the tidings first came that Christ was born. They were shepherds abiding in the field near Bethlehem, keeping watch over their flocks by night. To shepherds, not to priests and rulers. To shepherds, not to scribes and Pharisees, an angel appeared, proclaiming, Unto you is born this day a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. The saying of James should come into our mind as we read these words. Has not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? James 2.5 The lack of money debars no one from spiritual privileges. The things of God's kingdom are often hidden from the great and noble and revealed to the poor. 
The busy labor of the hands need not prevent a man being favored with special communion with God. Moses was keeping sheep. Gideon was threshing wheat. Elisha was plowing when they were each honored by direct calls and revelations from God. Let us resist the suggestion of Satan that religion is not for the working man. The weak of the world are often called before the mighty. The last are often first, and the first last. It's a very great reminder of the nature of who the gospel comes to. Remember Paul writes at the very beginning of 1 Corinthians that not many of you were wise, not many of you were noble. I mean, the gospel comes to um, little children. Uh, Jesus says that. Um, he says in Matthew chapter 11, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have revealed, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children, for such was your gracious will. And that's the nature of the gospel, isn't it? As we just said, it is a simple thing. And then it comes to us, um, it comes to people that we wouldn't expect. This shows the grace and the wisdom of our God, doesn't it? Some of us may feel that we are um, maybe not smart enough or not worthy enough, or we just do that, or we're just a worker, or we're just a mother, or we're just a son, or we're just this or just that. Well, these men were just shepherds. And, and those were the kind of people that Jesus proclaimed his good news to first. That's whom the God the Father wanted to proclaim to first through the angelic visitation that came, that the Son of God had come to save his people from their sins. Okay, next. So we've got the gospel the facts about Jesus Christ. We have the gospel comes to us and comes to us as the shepherds, doesn't it? It comes to us when we are, are weak and uh, to us who maybe don't think much about ourselves or the world doesn't think much about us. Now I want to turn our attention because after we walk through Luke's gospel, right, Jesus is baptized. Um, we read his genealogy, which traces it all the way to Adam, which, by the way, should be another notice that's different from Matthew's genealogy, which begins at Abraham. And Matthew's trying to trace really a, a royal genealogy, Matthew from Abraham to David to Jesus, very uh, Jewish in that sense, right? I'm not saying there's no implications for Gentiles, just that's that's the nature of that genealogy. Whereas Luke's genealogy goes from Jesus and traces it not simply to David and not simply to Abraham, but all the way to Adam. Okay, all the way to Adam, tying in Jesus to not simply to Israel, but also to the whole human race. And then in Luke chapter 4, we open up with the temptation of Jesus. Jesus is um, full of the Holy Spirit and led out and to be tempted by the devil. And J.C. Ryle has some very helpful things here as we think about what Jesus went through in his temptation in the wilderness, where, remember, the, the Satan comes to him, the devil comes to him, and, and says, I'll give you this, and if you are the Son of God, do this. All of those temptations and testings that he came trying to lure the Son of God into sin. And here, um, J.C. Ryle has some very helpful stuff to, for us to remark upon about um, this, this temptation. He writes this, Let us mark thirdly, um, this is, of course, in his uh, commentary there, um, the exceeding subtlety of our great spiritual enemy, the devil. Three times we see him assaulting our Lord and trying to draw him into sin. Each assault showed the hand of a master in the art of temptation. Each assault was the work of one acquainted by long experience with every weak point in human nature. Each deserves an attentive study. 
Satan's first device, and this is the device from The Temptation, right, that Ryle's writing about. Satan's first device was to persuade our Lord to distrust his father's providential care. He comes to him when weak and exhausted with 40 days hunger and suggests to him to work a miracle in order to gratify a carnal appetite. Why should he wait any longer? Why should the Son of God sit still and starve? Why not command this stone to become bread? Satan's second device was to persuade our Lord to grasp at worldly power by unlawful means. He takes him to the top of a mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. All these he promises to give him if he will but fall down and worship him. The concession was small. The promise was large. Why not by a little momentary act obtain an enormous gain? Satan's last device was to persuade our Lord to an act of presumption. He takes him to a pinnacle of the temple and suggests to him to cast himself down. By so doing, he would give public proof that he was one sent by God. In so doing, he might even depend on being kept from harm. Was there not a text of scripture which specially applied to the Son of God in such a position? Was it not written that angels should bear him up? On each of these three temptations, it would be easy to write much. Let it be sufficient to remind ourselves that we see in them the three favorite weapons of the devil. Unbelief, worldliness, and presumption are three grand engines which he is ever working against the soul of man, and by which he is ever enticing him to do what God forbids, and to run into sin. Let us remember this and be on our guard. The acts that Satan suggests to us to do are often in appearance trifling and unimportant. But the principle involved in each of these little acts, we may be sure, is nothing short of rebellion against God. Let us not be ignorant of Satan's devices. That's very helpful, by the way, real quick as we take a quick break here in the middle of this section. Unbelief, worldliness, and presumption are three grand engines, three things that Satan particularly will use to try to tempt us into sin. And we need to be aware of those things. We need to be aware of the fact that um, Satan knows that we can be tempted and, and our flesh, he has an ally in the indwelling sin that remains in us if we're believers, of, the, of, the, of a natural uh, proneness to unbelief, to worldliness, and to presumption. We have to fight each of those three things. Um, and he's going to show us now how our Lord resisted these temptations. He writes this, Let us mark lastly the manner in which our Lord resisted Satan's temptations. Three times we see him foiling and baffling the great enemy who assaulted him. He does not yield a hair's breadth to him. He does not give him a moment's advantage. Three times we see him using the same weapon in reply to his temptations. The sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Ephesians six seventeen. He who was full of the Holy Spirit was yet not ashamed to make the Holy Scripture his de- weapon of defense and his rule of action. Let us learn from this single fact, if we learn nothing else from this wondrous story, the high authority of the Bible and the immense value of a knowledge of its contents. Let us read it, search into it, pray over it, diligently, perseveringly, unweariedly. Let us strive to be so thoroughly acquainted with its pages that its text may abide in our memories and stand ready at our right hand in the day of need. 
Let us be able to appeal from every perversion and false interpretation of its meaning to those thousand plain passages which are written, as it were, with a sunbeam. The Bible is indeed a sword, but we must take heed that we know it well if we would use it with effect. So helpful again, isn't it? And this is why we want to read the Bible, not simply to um, know more about Jesus. That's what we do want. But also we see the the, the practical of the reality is that once we are armed with the gospel of Jesus Christ, once we know the pages of Scripture, once we have it hidden in our heart more and more, we are able to combat these temptations, especially of unbelief presumption and worldliness. We're able to combat and fight those things with the truth and the promises of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to know who he is and our union with him and how we can combat and overcome the devil in him and overcome the evil one. So that's why one of the key things why we need to know the Bible, isn't it? Because we're going to face temptation. Temptations will come. The question is, will we be ready to face them? Are we taking uh, care that as we read the Bible, we're doing so knowing that we need this? It's not simply um, good stuff to know. It's necessary stuff to know. We need this. We need this sword to fight the enemy um, because we are engaged in a war. We are engaged in a conflict that cannot be reconciled. We do not wrestle with flesh and blood but against uh, spiritual darkness, don't we? And we want to be ready. And the only way to fight that is in Christ by the power of the Spirit armed with the Word of God. Okay, so now we've Jesus here is faced the devil. He comes and, and defeats the devil. The devil leaves. And then Jesus goes and uh, preaches at Nazareth, his hometown, Right? He grows up in Nazareth. These people know him. They've grown, Maybe some of them grew up with Jesus, were played with Jesus as children, um, went through all the phases of life with Jesus. Some of them maybe were older and knew Jesus whenever he was a small child. So they, they know Jesus. They're familiar with him. At least they think they are familiar with him. Um, they're... Um, and, and here's what happens. Jesus goes and preaches uh, to them. And they are astonished and reject and don't believe his claims. I want to read this from J.C. Ryle where he talks about uh, Jesus in this uh, context. This is from Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 22. He says this, We should observe for another thing in these verses what a striking account our Lord gave to the congregation at Nazareth of his own office and ministry. We are told that he chose a passage from the book of Isaiah in which the prophet foretold the nature of the work Messiah was to do when he came into the world. He read how it was foretold that he would preach the gospel to the poor, how he would be sent to heal the brokenhearted, how he would preach deliverance to the captives, sight to the blind, and liberty to the bruised, and how he would proclaim that a year of jubilee to all the world had come. And when our Lord had read this prophecy, he told the listening crowd around him that he himself was the Messiah of whom these words were written, and that in him and in his gospel the marvelous figures of the passage were about to be fulfilled. We may well believe that there was a deep meaning in our Lord's selection of this special passage of Isaiah. He desired to impress on his Jewish hearers the true nature of the Messiah, whom he knew all Israel were then expecting. 
He well knew that they were looking for a mere temporal king who would deliver them from Roman dominion and make them once more foremost among the nations. Such expectations, he would have them understand, were premature and wrong. Messiah's kingdom at his first coming was to be a spiritual kingdom over hearts. His victories were not to be over worldly enemies, but over sin. His redemption was not to be from the power of Rome, but from the power of the devil and the world. It was in this way, and in no other way at present, that they must expect to see the words of Isaiah fulfilled. Let us take care that we know for ourselves in what light we ought chiefly to regard Christ. It is right and good to reverence him as very God. It is well to know him as head over all things, the mighty prophet, the judge of all, the king of kings. But we must not rest here if we hope to be saved. We must know Jesus as the friend of the poor in spirit, the physician of the diseased heart, the deliverer of the soul in bondage. These are the principal offices he came on earth to fulfill. It is in this light we must learn to know him, and to know him by inward experience as well as by the hearing of the ear. Without such knowledge, we shall die in our sins. Uh, That's very helpful uh, as we think about why Jesus came into this world. He came, um, yes, as a king, yes, as a prophet, yes, as a priest, but he also came as the friend of sinners, as the friend of the poor in spirit, the physician of the diseased heart, the deliverer of the soul in bondage. Jesus is full of tender grace and compassion. He exercises all of his omnipotent power in such a way that it is infinitely tender at the same time, if that makes sense. The infinite God, the, the, the divine nature, Jesus shares that one divine nature, doesn't he? The Son of God shares the one divine nature with the other three pers- with the other uh, two persons of the, of the Trinity. He shares that, and yet it is in service in and in, in employed in a tender, compassionate, loving fashion to us sinners, the poor in spirit, those who are bound in our sin and, and in the dark night of our, of our slavery and bondage to sin. He comes and proclaims liberty to us and sets us free. Um, Jesus is a powerful Savior and Redeemer and yet also tender and affectionate and uh, full of love for sin-sick sinners who need him. And so I think that's a very helpful thing to just notice. That's how Luke opens up, uh, that's how Jesus opened up his ministry, in Luke, and, and that's what Luke records for us. This was his first sermon, which was, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim liberty to the captives, good news to the poor. A wonderful Savior we have. Uh, one last thing I want to read to you is uh, from Luke's gospel again, chapter 5. As we move on to Luke chapter 5, Jesus is now engaged in his ministry, but here he's calling his first disciples. And we have this very interesting section here with Peter where Jesus calls uh, his first disciples, talks to Simon Peter, um, and and uh, remember he, he says, cast down your nets, but uh, you know, you'll catch fish. Peter is kind of uh, rude to him and says, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. A miracle happens, the nets are full, and then Simon Peter sees it, falls down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. 
Um, and so that's what this last section here is about. Whenever Simon Peter fell down um, before the Lord in this way. Uh, J.C. Ryle writes this. <clears throat> we should observe, thirdly, in this passage, how much a sense of God's presence abases man and makes him feel his sinfulness. We see this strikingly illustrated by Peter's words when the miraculous drought convinced him that one greater than man was in his boat. We read that he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. In measuring these words of Peter, we must, of course, remember the time at which they were spoken. He was, at best, but a babe in grace, weak in faith, weak in experience, and weak in knowledge. At a later period in his life, he would doubtless have said, Abide with me, and not depart. But still, after every deduction of this kind, the words of Peter exactly express the first feelings of man when he is brought into anything like close contact with God. The sight of divine greatness and holiness makes him feel strongly his own littleness and sinfulness. Like Adam after the fall, his first thought is to hide himself. Like Israel under Sinai, the language of his heart is, Let not God speak with us lest we die. Exodus 20 verse 19. Let us strive to know more and more, every year we live, our need of a mediator between ourselves and God. Let us seek more and more to realize that without a mediator, our thoughts of God can never be comfortable. And the more clearly we see God, the more uncomfortable we must feel. Above all, let us be thankful that we have in Jesus the very mediator whose help our souls require, and that through him we may draw near to God with boldness and cast away, cast fear away. Out of Christ, God is a consuming fire. In Christ, he is a reconciled father. Without Christ, the strictest moralist may well tremble as he looks forward to his end. Through Christ, the chief of sinners may approach God with confidence and feel perfect peace. I think that's a, that's a, a, a very, a very true statement that, um, whenever we really understand who God is and you think about passages like, um, well, I'm reminded of, uh, Abraham, obviously, uh, when God comes to him, Abraham falls on his face and, or, uh, uh, approaches God in in Genesis 18 and says, I whom I think dust and ashes is how he talks about himself. Or we think about Job's experience with God or Moses' experience with God taking his uh, sandals off because the, the place where he is standing is now holy ground because God is there. Or we think about Isaiah in the Old Testament where he sees God in all of his holy beauty and by the sheer magnitude of what he's experiencing, the blindingness of it, uh, Isaiah says, Woe is me, I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips. And here, Peter is experiencing the same thing again. He's experiencing the sight and experiencing the presence of God. And this pairs well with what we just read about how we want Jesus as our friend of sinners and compassionate. Because if we only had to do with God um, without a mediator, we would be consumed. And there is a sense in which before we will appreciate the mediator, the God-man, Jesus Christ, we must first, and, and really we need to be continually reminded of this throughout our lives because sometimes we get too comfortable. Um, 
we need to be reminded of God's holiness and otherless, otherness, um, his beauty, his infinite greatness. And that's what Peter experienced here. He experienced the contrast between Jesus's holiness, the infinite divine perfection, and his own creaturely sinfulness. And we would do well, I think, to remember that. Now, we don't want to stop there, obviously. Jesus is the friend of sinners. And as J.C. Ryle points out, that it reminds us of our need for a mediator. We need someone to go between for us to God, right? We need Jesus Christ, the God-man, to come and to speak God's words to us in a way. And whenever he does that now, and whenever he lays down his life and makes atonement for us, we can now boldly come to God's presence. Not full of ourselves and arrogant, but we come with confidence knowing that we are accepted because God chose this mediator to come that we could, through whom we can come into his presence. And God chose the mediator to bring us and to, to bring us back to him. That is the wonderful truth of the gospel. So as we come to worship God, we come with these um, these things that at some level may feel like contradictory, but think about like Psalm 2 where it says, rejoice with trembling. How do we combine rejoicing in God's presence with holy trembling? And there's a sense in which it happens in and through the mediator as we come to the God we come into God's presence, but we still come into it with gratitude and full of confidence, but we also come with awe and reverence. He is God, and what a wonderful privilege it is that he is our God through the person and work of Jesus Christ. So I hope this has been encouraging to you. I hope that you'll read the Bible this week, and I hope that it's these, these devotional thoughts will, will help you as you think about the passages and keep our minds on Christ, upon his truth, upon what he's teaching us. And, and I hope and pray that it's changing you and giving you the, um, the strength you need in renewing your mind and changing the way you live um, in your family, but at work and, and here at church and in all of your callings in life, wherever you may be, the word of God is applicable and special and powerful. So thank you so much for listening. Um, I'll catch you next week where we'll be begin reading in Luke chapter seven. Take care and God bless.